My friends, hello. How are you? How are things on your end? Boy, I uh, I can imagine as I think about those who listen to this podcast that things are in all kinds of different places based on where you're at. I hope it finds you well. I'm okay. Uh, my name is Ben Tartine. Uh, this is a podcast designed for our small church community called Colossae East. We meet here in uh, east side of Portland, Oregon. And um, for those who are not part of our community or listening from beyond, you know, welcome to you just as much as a strong welcome to those here in town. It is uh, my hope that we can spend time uh, following through these gospel stories as they're laid out by the Revised Common Lectionary and and learn and see a truth in the teaching and in the life of Jesus that opens us up, that helps us to make some kind of sense of who we are, why we're here, what matters. So that's what we're doing. And it's cool to be able to do this with you. And we enter this week, um, we kind of took a hiatus last Sunday from the flow we were in, uh, to celebrate All Saints Day, and now we have two more days in the liturgical calendar uh, in what would be called Ordinary Time, and these last two Sundays will take place uh, on the Olive Mountain. And so this is going to be part one of two, and I'll explain that a little bit more. Uh, Jesus, we're imagining him, his disciples, Already we've talked about this assault, if you will, a divine assault he brought on the temple, a huge reaction from the major power brokers there in the city itself. Tension is brewing, things are heating up, the disciples, you can imagine, have a little bit more trembling going on as they think about their life and future. <laughs> and uh, then we arrive at this Mount of Olives. Uh, just across the Kidron Valley in Jerusalem. And Jesus says some stuff. Oh, my goodness. All right. So we're going to do, you know, the same thing we've been doing. We'll take a deep dive. The actual text for this Sunday um, is the first 13 verses of Matthew 25. But I want to try to do the whole, what's called sometimes the Olivet Discourse, uh, which is Matthew 24 and 5. Uh, together. So, as I noted, we'll we'll flesh that out a little bit more. I want to start right now with a thought that I think um, helps orient where we're headed and um, maybe where we're where we're at right now. So, uh, if you've been at church services before, or perhaps just heard the song uh, "Come Thou Fount," I think is the title, but there's a line in it. Uh, it's an old school hymn. Perhaps you've heard it. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You know, uh, we're singing this hymn, and and this line comes up, and it expresses a feeling that I think many folks who want to follow Jesus, uh, who have set out to learn about and follow God's way have this common refrain in our own lives. I feel like I'm prone to wander, to leave you, Lord. I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. There's this sense of, I want to be with you and following you, but 
I, I, there's this uh, tendency, <laughs> this predisposition to, to wander off. And I want to ask, you know, what causes that? What's at the heart of our prone to wanderness? You know, we, I think we all resonate with that to a degree. And I think, and we've talked about this quite a bit, I think at the heart of it is fear and worry, uh, anxiety. Consider the first wandering heart that we see in the ancient scriptures, you know, Eve. Eve in the garden is enjoying a life. She's receiving a life given by God in a world created by God under the loving care and the eternal promise of God. Things are good. Things are well. But the voice comes saying, yeah, but you're missing out still. There's more than, than what you have. You want more, don't you? What if you don't attain to that knowledge of good and evil? What if you miss it? What if you could be more than you are and you don't take that opportunity? You know, you, you, you really want to not miss out on that, right? And now Eve, in that moment where the serpent is tempting her to do what God has not instructed, has said don't do, Eve lets go of her divine intellect, if you will, that moves her to trust God. She lets go of that part of her being and and grasps firmly onto her own personal senses, what she alone thinks and feels. And from that solo human perspective, there's really no issue with eating fruit from that one little tree. It's not that big of a deal. Surely something like that can't be so bad. God created me this way. He created me with a desire, this desire that I have. I am a free being. I can act. And so Eve says, yeah, it's according to my senses, what I really think is true based on me, I'm going to go for it. But in the act, this is the great tragedy. In the act, Eve realizes that freedom is actually not gained or exercised, but it's lost. She's actually chained now to the limits of her own perception and her own senses. Her life at that level is enslaved or cursed. And, and then the story of the scriptures is that ours is as well. We're, this is the way of the world we are born into. We have come to depend almost solely on our personal, individual senses. What we know works, how we know to survive, what our families and ancestors, you know, what people have taught us about how the world is and how you keep moving. And even though, you know, we have graveyards everywhere, and it all leads to terrible suffering and ultimate death, we still keep thinking that our ways work as best as any way of life possibly could. And I want to add, as Americans, I think we like to believe that any other human anywhere would be envious to enjoy our way of life. I was raised to think that. The way that the world around us, the globe, was portrayed, it was like, man, where else would you ever want to be? This is the best way of life possible, you know? But 2020 hit pretty hard. I don't know about you. It has me. And I think it's revealed something. And it's, it's a, at that level, the Greek word apocalypsis is a revelatory where it's revealing. It's peeling back the layers kind of idea. Well, it's kind of like that right now, you know? And I think it's revealed that 
our schools, our police forces, our military, our government, our social communication platforms, the way we talk, our consuming and buying, our, our hoarding, fighting. 2020 has revealed that we are living on fear, entertained by fear, driven by fear. Fear of losing our freedom, fear of losing our chosen pleasures, fear of limitation, fear about money, fear over our neighbors in town and neighboring nations from around the world. We are fearful and we're angry. I think 2020 has showed, it's, it's shown me that about myself. You know, I'm, you get so good at pretending you're not afraid of stuff, but then the, the, <laughs> the curtain gets revealed. You know, it's like pulled back. You're like, oh, my goodness. I think I am afraid of the world and what's going on. Well, the human being doesn't bode well when he or she is running on fear. We've learned this, you know. We, you know, our brains don't function well. They lock out uh, a huge capacity, and we go into sort of a tunnel visions, flight, flight or fright, Fright or flight, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, we get we get totally locked down, and we start to just act. It almost feels like on base instinct, like animal instinct, like Eve and Adam. It it's this seemingly impossible task, and I and I think we all feel. I think they felt it right right. You know, as the story shows. And here's the task. I think that the hardest thing that we're trying to do is, is live as human beings who are feeling and being compelled by our senses. How, what else could we be? We're physical beings. What we see and touch and taste and feel and hear, like that, we have to be compelled by those things. <laughs> what we learn in our physical world simply by living here is real and it matters. We have to pay attention. It's, it has to be part of the equation. And then we take these powerful senses we have and we're supposed to integrate them with a pure trust in God's way, in his way of life. So God's never like, don't, don't trust your senses. They're all just wrong. It's not that, but it's this integration where God's way is the, is the priority. It, it helps us understand how to respond to our senses. And that kind of trust is like a purity of trust in God's way, like a childlike trust. You'd see it in a kid who just immediately believes and trusts his or her parents. You know, we sense what we think is best or what we want, but we only act according to God. We just like, I trust him more than anything. And we make that his his way, his instruction, the way he wants us to live. We don't see it as offensive, but we make it our number one priority in work or school or, you know, public, home, wherever you're at. We make it our primary goal to be operating in Jesus's way of life, whatever we're doing. So this is at the heart of everything we're going to talk about uh, as Jesus opens up this dialogue at in, in this mountain of olives that overlooks the side of Jerusalem. These guys are in a system of and world of and nation of and culture of fear. 
and and a lot of people just operating on their senses. But the 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 real irony, tragedy, heart like really heartbreaking part of it is they've learned a way of using words and activities to make themselves feel and look as though it's not operating on their senses, but is operating in the ways of God, right? And and so Jesus comes. <laughs> who is God? And they're like, who are you? <laughs> and he's like, oh, no, I don't think we're operating in the ways of God if you don't even recognize God when he's giving you a hug, <laughs> you know? Oh, man. So the, the problem is, and I think this is true for us, operating on just your senses is completely familiar and normal. Nobody tells you to not do that. In fact, we have all kinds of slogans that champion it, you know? Believe in yourself, follow your heart, do whatever you want. <laughs> Integrating your senses with your understanding of God's way of love for all people, that takes learning and patience, lots of time. And it takes a community of fellow learners as well, a church. So this is a big deal. Integrating your senses with your understanding of God's way of love is not like, I read a, a wonderful verse that inspired me, and I believe it's true, so now I'm, I'm living with God. That all is positive, but living with God is not something that comes easy. It takes a lot of instruction and help, and it takes a lot of learning, to be honest. <laughs> and to do that, you need a lot of people to listen to you who will forgive you. And 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 they can only be so forgiving because they too have learned to be honest with themselves. That's the way of Christ. Patience is absolutely at its core. And hope. And we as people these days don't have a lot of time for patience. And there's no time for hope either. We'll come back to that. Fear is the root of that choice to depart from God's way. The choice to once again rely only on our senses. And I think the wandering moment then begins with some kind of fear. Fear of not being satisfied. I think that's what we saw in Eve. Fear of rejection. Fear of death. And our story in Matthew has shown Jesus leading his followers through a bunch of raw fear scenarios, you know, fear of nat natural disaster that could easily claim their lives, you know, storms out on the sea, fear of social rejection by his fellow countrymen or their fellow country people, fear of imprisonment by Rome, you know, that's at play, fear of the religious power brokers in Jerusalem, uh, you know, they're everywhere they go, they have reason to fear. And what is Jesus's? common refrain, do not be afraid, he says, for I am with you. And they say they understand, and they do, I think for sure. They're still with them, aren't they? But we see fear gripping them over and over again. And I'm glad that the gospel writer, Matthew, and the other gospel writers too, uh, record this for the permanent record for people like me. Because I so instinctively see these as like storybook heroes, and I can skip right over the fact that, like me, they continue. I mean, they have Jesus right there with them, so they don't even have an excuse. <laughs> but I it, I just see them struggling deeply to just make sense of what he's saying, because it just sounds so crazy. 
they're they're prone to wander, just like us. They say they understand, but we see that fear get them. Even even still, we see one of his key friends, Jesus says, Peter, he totally caves to fear, and he'll reject Jesus in an effort to live another day. Peter wanders. And later on, he feels that deep suffering from stepping out of the way of Jesus. But the pain turns into another reminder of Jesus' loving kindness because Jesus welcomes Peter and forgives him again, as he has many times. He shows us that that's the way, not to come and strike Peter down, but to say, hey, I get it, I forgive you. Just keep practicing my way. Live with that trust in me. I meant it before, I mean it now. So that leads us to the story, okay, that we're going to hear during this and the next episode. This will be part one, as I mentioned, of a two-part series. And folks will often call this passage, we'll read the Olivet Discourse. It's a conversation between Jesus and his disciples that they have on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. And just for a little bit of an outline here, you know, Jesus gets wild with some end times imagery and what sounds like some future telling. And it's like, boom, you want to get fearful? Let's throw some stuff out that'll make you terrified. Okay. Then it plays out. So he drops this sort of huge bomb <laughs> and then and then we have to process what's going on so in some i think this is a good way to see what these two episodes will look like jesus gives this crazy conversation prompt a, a warning of like doom and mayhem so it starts there then the disciples are going to freak out a little bit and they're going to want to know when the sky is going to fall you know when 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 and then Jesus will, in good Jesus form, say, I don't know. <laughs> and then he'll tell a bunch of short stories. And then he'll have two longer parables. And once again, they'll be about the kingdom of God. So the first will be a parable about 10 bridesmaids. And the second will be a parable of the talents. So for this episode, we're going to do that whole outline except the parable of the talents. This one is kind of the whole chapter 24 and the bridesmaids at the end. Then the talents will be next week. And I'll just say, you know, wow, I know this is about the first century people and the culture and the international world that's vastly different from our own. But I think you're going to feel like Jesus is talking about our recent election in America here. And I think he's talking about COVID and what we see on the news and suicide attacks and wars and bombs flying and militaries stoking up and the hurricane season this year and the tsunamis and earthquakes. I think he's actually speaking to us in a profound way. So our goal here, we have to say, is not to cover or unearth the entire Olivet Discourse because it's it's complex and there's a lot you could do. But I want to get deep enough into chapter 24. Uh, again, it spans Matthew 24 and 25. So we get deeper into 24 to really help the two main parables at the end come into view. Jesus is, they're just, when you read them on their own, it's a little bit tough. When you read them in the context of his whole sort of teaching here on the mountain of olives, 
uh, it just, they come into a much better focus in my view. So he's talking about wondering, I think. That's why we started there. He's talking about a very popular, normal, average thing to do when we as human beings experience fear. And he's promising that however normal and average it seems, it is straight up death. So he's, this is a powerhouse of a warning just as much as it is a conversation about an immeasurable source of hope. <laughs> so you've got, you've got both of those happening here for sure. A huge kind of punch you in the eye sort of warning. I don't think Jesus would punch you in the eye, but you know, it's just like boom. And then this, this also remember patience, remember hope. Uh, so it's very beautiful at that level. Okay. So here we go. Let's just sort of walk through this chapter and let the story unfold. You know, Jesus, we're in Matthew 24, uh, and in the opening verses, you, you see Jesus and the disciples leaving the city, and they're commenting on how beautiful, you know, the architecture there is surely looking up at the temple. I think, I don't remember if it was Josephus for sure, but I think it was a, a, somewhere Josephus mentions people who come around the bend or up over the hill, you know, and they see Jerusalem and those limestone blocks are like white when the sun is hitting them in the reflection and they gleamed. You had to look away. It was so bright, you know. So everybody's impressed by the temple and the, the buildings around there. And they're leaving after that big temple scene we saw and the disciples, ironically, after everything Jesus said and did in the temple, they're walking out of it and they're like, oh man, look at how great this place is. It's so big. It's so beautiful. Da, 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 da. And Jesus responds, you know, and he says, yeah, well, that uh, that's all going to get completely demolished, totally torn down, destroyed, not one rock on top of the other is the way he puts it. And they're just, you can imagine the moment where they're just listening and like, oh, say what now? <laughs> good way to grab the, that's a good hook. You know, they've, he's got their attention now. Peaceful, non-destructive Jesus is talking about what now? And they ask the same thing that I think you and I would ask. You know, imagine we're sitting there. We're wondering where our friends and family are in relationship to this, you know, what is about to be destroyed, <laughs> where you're looking at the city and the buildings and you're like, okay, where are the kids? Where's my parents? What's going on here? Because your question is what? When? When is this going to happen? So the disciples ask, you know, what you and I would ask, when is this going to all roll out? And Jesus answers classic Jesus responses. You want to know? Yeah, same with me. I don't know. How about I tell a story? <laughs> that frustration we feel with his lack of an answer, he assuages, you know, with the promise of a story. It's kind of like, it's like the ancient people were already story bingers, you know? Ooh, a story. Okay, all right. Well, he's not going to answer, but at least we can watch a new story. I don't think that's actually true, but he told good stories, you know? They are uh, they're popular at the time. Well, he starts painting some word pictures, and this will be a place we have to uh, spend a, a couple minutes because it's a word picture that's probably familiar if you've been a part of, you know, pop pop Christianity or 
good, healthy, any kind of church life in America. I bet you've heard these images before. Okay, so uh, Matthew 24, verses 4 through 8, you know, Jesus says something we really need to to pay attention to. But listen to these words and, and, and tell me what you immediately think or, or, you know, consider what you immediately think after you hear them. Uh, this is Matthew 24, starting in verse 6, actually. Uh, and you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world, but all this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. Okay? So... What is the first thing that sort of pops into your mind right there? Because for me, when I hear those words, I hear, oh, yeah, that's those are the signs of the end times. Those are when that kind of stuff is happening, then you kind of have to start to worry because something major is going to When I was a kid, we watched these movies that totally freaked me out. And I think they, you know, banked a lot on these kind of passages, but read, I think, wrongly. I jumped in, I said at verse 6, but notice what he says if we just back it up and let it start out and read it in the context of the verses. Matthew 24, verse 3, this is after they've walked out, they've seen the, the temple and the buildings and admired them. Jesus has said they are all, listen, listen here, they're all getting torn down. Not one rock will stand on top of the other. And then verse 3, later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the Olive Mountain, okay? And and if you can imagine this Mount of Olives, well, we'll come to that later. He sat on the Mount of Olives, and his disciples came to him privately, and they said, tell us when will all this happen? What sign will signal your return at the end of the world? And Jesus told them in verse 4, don't let anybody mislead you, for many will come in my name claiming I'm the Messiah, and they will deceive many, and you will hear about wars and threats of wars, but do not panic. Or, this is the New Living Translation, do not be afraid, would be others. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Okay? So, if you just see how he sets it up, he is saying... Talk about war and rumors of war, that's part and parcel to human living. And talk about natural disasters and how we're all going to die soon, that's part and parcel to human living. And I've, I've done some cursory research into, you know, the history of, of natural disasters, and it is true. We're in a pretty, a pretty calm time in terms of loss of life and major disaster, although as I look at a certain you know, storytelling news source in our world, I would be made to believe that this is the worst time in human history ever <laughs> in terms of natural disaster. It's just simply not true. And Jesus's words seem to be accurate at that point. He's like, look, people are going to point to these normal broken realities and say, oh no, oh no, the sky is falling, you know. And he's saying, don't worry, not do worry. That's, that's when you got to run. No, he's saying, don't worry. He said, that's, that's going to be part of what has to happen, is his teaching here. It's part of the drill. It is our current reality. It's not something to be afraid of, quite frankly. Then he moves, and we'll go over them pretty quickly, but in verses 9 through 30, 35, we're again in Matthew 24 here. 
Jesus gets into this apocalyptic vision of the future, uh, a revealing sort of picture that shows us just enough to create a lot of questions. <laughs> it's clear enough to be quite mysterious, you know. Part of his future prediction is about the actual real destruction of the temple, which comes in 70 AD. So, you know, maybe in like 40 years or, or less, there that is going to happen. So he is talking about a real historical event that's pretty much right on the horizon. And he's wanting them to see that they'll be led to think that this moment, as the temple comes down and the buildings crumble under a, under the weight of an invader, destroying it all, you know, you're going to be prone to think, like many before you have been, that oh, this is the end. It's war. It's rumors of war. There's chaos and destruction. And he's saying it's actually not the end. It's the beginning of the end. It's just the fall of Jerusalem and the temple. And it's awful, yeah, but it's not the end end. That end is going to be different and and maybe quite a bit worse. It'll be a different time, something that looks less like the sort of average chaos of a lost world and its wanton destruction of life and goodness. And it'll be something more like an intentional, direct opposing of God and his way including the opposing of a people who live according to his way. So here's how Jesus puts it in Matthew 24, 23 to 29. He's just said, you know, don't let all that other stuff people love to make signs about and tell you, I know it's the end. Look at, look at, there's a, don't listen to that stuff. That's part of the drill. Then if anyone tells you, look, here's the Messiah or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. See, I have warned you about this ahead of time. And that see in verse 25, you know, pay attention. I'm, I'm speaking truthfully here to you. I'm warning you ahead of time. Verse 26, so if someone tells you, look, the messiah is out in the desert, don't bother to go and look. Or, look, he is hiding here. Don't believe it. Verse 27, for as the lightning flashes in the east and shines in the west, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. Just as the gathering of vultures shows there is a carcass nearby, so these signs indicate that the end is near. Okay. <laughs> and then he drops, I think he goes to Isaiah and Joel. Uh, Joel 1. Joel, I think it's Joel 2, and I know it's Isaiah 13. Uh, so in verse 29, he just quotes from these prophets. Immediately after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Oh, you know, that's intense. I told you it was clear enough to be quite mysterious. Though this, to the Jewish reader, is totally the day of Daniel's great vision. Daniel had this great vision in uh, chapter 7 that it was going to be fulfilled, a sign from heaven, the Son of Man on the clouds. He's made the ruler over all. So, man, when you're hearing Jesus say these things, you're wondering, this is Daniel 7, this is big, this is the deal. 
I'm interested in that note in verse 24 that says false saviors will rise up and deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. The King James Version renders it insomuch that, if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. The sense of Christians, now I think where we're at today, being lured into following someone that seems bigger or better or more powerful, greater, something or someone that can do great things. And then this vulture image, okay? Oh, man. So this this end of time is going to be a time where there's all kinds of real uh, opposing of God's way. And in that time, there's going to be a good swath of people emerging, or I, I want to even just say ways, <laughs> you know, that promise um, uh, salvation, that promise uh, survival, that promise a way to solve the problems. Um, and and we're told here that even those will be deceived, those who are following God and want to, uh, will wander from him. And that vulture image, it's it's almost sensing a world where deceit is just normal, uh, where being fake is expected and even considered good. And that I, th- I think that's our world in many ways. Being fake is expected. You need to do it to get ahead. It's even considered good. And as that kind of lying continues, more and more death comes Maybe because we've become less and less familiar with what is true and the fact that truth is good. So these things, people leading God's folks, God's men and women and children away from his life, will be happening in this end of time moment. Okay, And you can see he's focusing not just think ahead, think ahead. He's saying, think about right now. Where are you right now? Have you ever seen beauty destroyed because somebody was afraid of what is true? Maybe that's happened in your your own life. It has in mine. I'm afraid to acknowledge what is true, and so that fear ends up corrupting much more of my life. Maybe you've been a part of a community, a family, a church, maybe a team or a group of students or whatever where you could tell that we're not able to talk openly about what is true anymore. We have to just pretend all is well. You know what that's like to your heart and soul as a human. We have all been, I think, and probably are in some way, in that kind of relationship to this world. And Jesus is at least talking about a time when people who have been taught about God and his scriptures their whole lives will still wander away from his way of life living under lies from people, and then the vultures are closing in because we're slowly dying, you know? This is some intense imagery. And it seems like he's saying that as this kind of thing happens, more and more people will be jumping into those pseudo-savior roles. Folks who say to us, we know what's true. We know based on this or based on that, so trust us. Folks who promise that their ideas and their research and their ways are the better life. And Jesus seems to tell us that you're just going to see more and more of those kind of promises as the end draws near. Okay. 
So this Olivet Discourse is jumping off pretty hot right here. <laughs> Apocalyptic images, some cautions given, you know, then come a couple stories. Remember, this all started when the disciples asked, when? When is this all going to happen, Jesus? The crumbling of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. When is that going to happen? And yikes, you know, is it soon? And and we get in verse 35, heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. Boom. Those are big statements that he's, that's a divinity statement right there. The words of God will never disappear. Verse 36, and this is again, Matthew 24. However, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. <laughs> oh, man, that's a funny thing to say, yeah? Okay, uh, well, this, is a, this is a big idea here uh, in terms of Trinity and Jesus and the Incarnation. I will not pretend that I can understand the inner workings of the Trinity, but I think we have to think about a couple of things when we're confused. Because, you know, if Jesus is God, then how can he possibly say what he just said? <laughs> you know, if he's God, he should know when the end is coming. He's God. <laughs> he's Father, Son, and Spirit as one. However, he is, but he is in Trinity, and this is a great mystery. What we know is Father, well, what we have historically understood as best we can in in Christianity is that Father, Son, Spirit exist eternally without beginning or end. But Son becomes human, you know, traditionally at Christmas, <laughs> and he is born, and that's a birthday, that's a beginning point. You know, he is a he is a human being who starts. He starts being a human at a certain point. And the New Testament shows us an image of a of this God, fully flesh, fully human, and fully God, who willfully releases his grasp on being the the power of God, if you will, and takes on the form of a servant. And I think that it's a real it's difficult, and I would never be able to even attempt to solve this problem for you. But the way I see it is Jesus in his human body, in his human form, is like us, and this expression here is is deeply true while it doesn't fit all of our rational categories neatly. So he can say in his humanity, this is something only the Father knows. Um, and it seems to be willful on his behalf. And I think there's a deep beauty there to explore. So it's just as confusing to them <laughs> as it is to us. But there it is. You know, the day is not yet here. And all that must happen leading up to that day is happening now. But the finality moment is not yet. Only the Father knows about that. I'm sitting here with you, my fellow human beings, we don't know that. That's a mystery to us. And when you hear that response, what do you start thinking instinctively? Well, okay, it's not here yet. <laughs> so when? <laughs> We're kind of back to when. Jesus already said, and now he says again more clearly, nobody knows. We literally don't have a time frame pinned down. And that's interesting. We really want that time frame, don't we? You and me? You know? That's worth examining. 
Why we so deeply want a time? We want to know. Well, when? When? Why do I want to know when? How would my life change now if I knew when? Do I believe that knowing when would somehow motivate me? I think many people that feel at this juncture like God the Father is sort of keeping secrets on purpose for a greater goal or a greater good. Something like, you know, God knows when that day will be, but he doesn't tell us so that we keep working hard. So we won't let down our guard and we'll really stay alert for his final coming. You know, that's how I've always sort of thought of it. I I think maybe that's possible. But my personal theory is changing on this one. And I think it's that God cannot talk to us about time frames in ways that we can actually understand. (laughs) I see it in the Old Testament image of like the day of the Lord. It means all kinds of different things. And and few of them are actually a day, but you're wondering, like, how is God understanding time, even back in the Old Testament? It's like our when question is not answerable with our words and with our categories for time. We're too limited to understand at this point. Infinity has torn into our time. Infinity has torn into our sense of time. And I think one of the outworkings of that is that God is so completely active, constantly working way more than we think. Like every single moment in everything, he's going nuts in active healing and restoration of all humanity. But it's like we're conditioned to not pay attention to that. And by not being conditioned to pay attention to his work and what he's actually doing in our world, then we're far more prone to wander away from it, aren't we? Because we're not even learning it. This is what the heart of prayer is, by the way. If you struggle with praying because you know, it's like, I always ask him for this and I never get it. Let the idea of prayer expand much greater to say you're entering a conversation with God to request from him an understanding of his work in the world and how you can join with him because that's the heartbeat of eternal living. (laughs) It's the best. So we're prone to wander from that when we're not even learning it. And I think that this whole concept of time is difficult for us because God's is is, uh, infinity. It's disruptive to what we understand. We've been conditioned to pay attention to our senses, particularly to danger, I think, to war, to natural disaster, to threats to our lives, to the time frames we have for what's left in life, yes? And ironically, being conditioned to live according to your senses only also comes with the conditioning to be attentive more to our fear. In fact, almost exclusively conditioned in fear. So we're conditioned to pay to follow our senses, and that also turns into our attention goes toward fear. You know, parentheses, not toward love. What happens if our attention is always toward love and not toward fear? So anyway, Jesus wraps up this apocalyptic imagery, you, it, you know, the darkening skies, and it's amazing. And then he reaffirms that this kind of experience is coming somehow at some kind of time, but the questions we have about time frame are just simply not answerable. 
So consider the possibility that Jesus's point is not to have his disciples to be thinking ahead at all, but instead to begin learning to see the reality in their own day, in their own time. And then he tells these stories, okay? So it's, it's cool. He's, I think that's what he does for you and me too. Everybody wants to know that stuff, but it's not actually helpful. What's helpful is learning the way of God no matter what, no matter what time it is. The stories. So the disciples, they're bummed. Okay, they've pressed him a couple times. When, when, when? And he's given them, I don't know. I'm not telling you. <laughs> but now he's going to tell another story. And Jesus' stories were trending hot those days. So we come to Matthew 24, 37. And he's going to redirect the conversation that he's having with. They're all sitting there in the olive grove. You know, the olive trees are over them. They're shady. Folks who are here in Portland, Oregon, if you're thinking of the Mount of Olives, I would imagine if you could, you know, I don't know if you've all been up there, but if you're on Mount Tabor here on the east side and you're looking toward the city, you would imagine about that height, uh, but the temple and the, um, you know, the structures of downtown Jerusalem, as it were, would not be so far away as downtown Portland, probably half that distance, okay? So you'd be about that high, and the temple and all the main structures would be halfway between Tabor and downtown. That's the best I can do for East Portlanders. For those who are not from Portland, I'm sorry. (laughs) But it's a valley that, you know, don't imagine miles and miles. It's just down a relatively small valley. They're sitting up on the hill. Okay. Well, Jesus now goes into the story. He's going to direct their conversation away from the disciples' question about when, and he's going to move it now toward the implications of not knowing when, okay? Essentially, what does it mean for you and me and any other person who wants to follow Jesus when we face these two huge realities? First, the total healing and renewal of the entire world he promises is coming but it is not fully realized yet. Okay, so that's a huge reality we face right now. Jesus is healing the entire world. He promises that will happen. It's not fully realized yet. There's a lot of pain and suffering still. Okay? The second one is that before all that fully realized healing comes, things hurt and kill us and wreck our world really bad. So those are two huge realities we face. And we don't know when that's going to end. So what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us if we want to follow Jesus? The most fundamental question is now, what are we doing now in this painful and deceitful time? Well, it's like Jesus can anticipate this question in the disciples. I'm asking it. We're all asking it. Who wouldn't ask it? It's the question. So he turns immediately to the story of Noah. Huh, Noah. Verse 37, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days, before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and until it swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. (laughs) Okay. So, what will you do 
in this painful and confusing time? One thing you could do is what Noah's neighbors did do back in the day, way, way back in the day. And and that was they were not in the same spot. Noah trusts in God, and they are trusting perhaps, could we say, in their own senses. Maybe they were trying to predict what they would need for a future based on everything that they could sense. So it's not raining, and there aren't really any large bodies of water to worry about. So building a big boat is not really as fun as this other thing. So I'll sort of plan my life out according to the way I best see what I need. It's pretty simple, and and it's really common, and it's average. That's what we're all doing. And so Noah's example is one of a person who has that same sense, you know, that any human being does, but he integrates it with a deep trust in God. God's way or his will becomes Noah's priority. So then, even when it doesn't really make sense, (laughs) you know, interesting, making sense, that even there, we only want to do what makes sense, right? That's an admission that we follow our senses. Well, Noah's priority, even when it doesn't really make much sense, is to follow God's will, his instruction. So it's going to be like that, Jesus says. And I think the question embedded in this story is, where are you truly? Where do you want to be for real? Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to me? Is he the king that I trust wholeheartedly and I follow his every move and obey his instructions because I want to? I want to integrate him in a priority level into my senses. Or is Jesus the wise, understanding friend who I do love and trust and maybe even speak with often? I would call him Lord, Lord, but he is more like a respected peer, and I either accept or reject his wisdom based on how I see it benefiting me. Okay? Which one do we land in there? The king I trust wholeheartedly or the wise friend I listen to when it makes sense? Well, the disciples are glued now. You can imagine. I wonder, they're probably eating olives. I don't know. I don't like olives myself, but I know that's a favorite for many. Well, they're glued, okay? They're listening. Nobody wants to drown. <laughs> they've, all had, they've all had the stories in the synagogue since they were little kids. Nobody wants to drown in foolishness while you watch wisdom sail away on a big yacht filled with exotic animals, right? You want to be on that lifeboat. So they're paying attention. And in in the basic story is there. Pay attention to God. Don't ignore him, thinking that if he's coming later, you know, let's just direct our own lives now. Well, then Jesus goes from there, okay, to more of that crazy imagery. Um, In Matthew 24, 40 to 44, you see these, this, because you don't know when the rains are coming to float Noah's boat away, right? The idea of, They thought it didn't matter, but Noah knew it did. So he listened and they didn't. And then, boom, just one day it started raining and the earth opened up and blah, blah, blah. And there it is. Well, now to advance that idea in verses 40 to 44, he gives the image of two people. It'll be like two people minding their own work, you know, doing business side by side. And then, poof, one is taken and the other is there, just like that. 
Or it'll be like when a burglar hits your property, you know, and he uses this example. He's like, look, if a burglar, if you know a burglar is coming, you prepare for it, don't you? If you don't, he hits you unawares, unexpected. So he uses that image. And it's interesting to imagine Jesus teaching this right there, as I noted, on the Mount of Olives. You've got Jerusalem. It's it's stretched out. The panoramic is the city in front of you. And, and he's using these examples of how it will be so sudden and unexpected that, you know, what's he saying? Well, God's going to show up. Now, who's sitting there with them under the olive trees getting some shade as he's teaching? Yeah, God. <laughs> and who's just sort of puked him out of the city and said, yeah, you're dumb. You're an idiot. We don't like you. God's holy people at the temple in the holy city of Jerusalem. It's like God showed up right in their midst and they didn't even know it. They weren't expecting it. They weren't aware of his ways. Oh, man. Okay. You see in the irony there? You see in how it just, oh, it's so rich here. So here he is. He's teaching them. This temple system is buzzing along. It's operating well. Many priests and leaders are busy with the work of God's ministry to human beings. That's what they're doing. And they're praying and they're singing and they're praising God. And they have the, the beautiful robes and all the stuff and the festivals. But they're pursuing something else. They've wandered far from God's way. And, and you know, in earlier um, moments, and as we've read here in Matthew, as Jesus, look, he looks upon the city and he weeps. Uh, oh, Jerusalem, you know, he, he speaks for the Father saying, all I wanted to do was care for you like a mother hen cares for her chicks, but you wander away from me. You keep going away. It's a heartbreaking thing, I think. We have to feel the heart. I mean, there's there's violence and terror, but there's heartbreak and sorrow, I think. As he sees this system buzzing right along with all the right words, hashtag blessed, you know, look at look, look at look. And they're self-deceived. Whatever it was they were pursuing, they were so self-consumed or self-deceived at this point, they couldn't see God himself in their midst. So it's a... It, it's a profound moment here. And Jesus is saying, pay attention, because some of God's elect, his chosen people, will be deceived in those days and will miss God. You see what's happening there? It's about the future as much as it is about right now. And it is possible that both of those are much closer to the same than they are separate. I read this and I wonder if Jesus is speaking to me. I think the disciples could put this together, even if just barely at the first beginnings, they had to be wondering, what is he saying? Is he speaking about me? Oh, <laughs> Spirit of God, please continue showing us what is real. Please do. We're listening. We want to see it, especially now. Well, we move on. Matthew 24, 45 to 51 is at the end of the chapter, and it's a small story that sets up the bridesmaid parable, okay? This is Jesus speaking, and we have to think about this one a little bit because it's punchy. They all are, aren't they? Verse 45, a faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. 
Okay. That's a good intro. You know, we get it. Uh, if I'm the master and I've got servants and a household and I have to peace out and I put somebody in charge and they can feed the folks and keep the household running well, that is a good responsibility. That's a good manager. That's somebody doing the right thing. Verse 46, if the master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job, then there will be a reward. I tell you the truth. The master will put that servant in charge of all that he owns. But what if the servant is evil and thinks, my master won't be back for a while, and then he begins beating the other servants, partying, and getting drunk? Verse 50, the master will return unannounced and unexpected, and he will cut the servant into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites, you know, the self-deceived. In that place, there will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh, okay. Whew. We're going to get chopped up into pieces, apparently. You know, this this is heavy duty, isn't it? I'm going to spend more time in the next episode on this concept of weeping and gnashing of teeth. But it is in the New Testament, I believe, an idiom that has to do with anger and opposition, not pain and, oh, I wish I could be there. Okay. So the idea is the master comes back and he sees that this servant is not following his way at all, and he disintegrates him, if you will, (laughs) and puts him with the others who want to be in that way. Those who say and praise and worship and say, Lord, Lord, uh, but don't want to live in the way. It's a hypocritical spot. So he sees them in in that role. And they oppose his way, and he and he says, you cannot be here harming my people anymore. And their opposition is anger and rebellion. And that is heavy imagery, isn't it? And if you're a disciple, you're well aware at this point about how the religious establishment has welcomed Jesus, you know? Uh, not very good. And so, if you will, they were unprepared for when God showed up. <laughs> and I think they, as the disciples, can sort of pick up on that. It seems like the big thing is that they see a man behaving like Jesus and they cannot automatically know this man is of God. You know, so they have wandered so far. Jesus's language in the story is interesting about how they've wandered. The servant starts beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk. That's how the New Living Translation puts it. King James Version says that he begins to smite his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken. New International Version says, uh, beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. So, remember that this is not an instruction or a history or whatever. It's a story we're invited to imagine and consider. And in the ways I was shown how to read the Bible, I would come upon something like this and I would say, well, I don't beat any workers. So, you know, heck, I'm not even a boss over anybody. So I'm good on that one. I don't beat any of my servants. I don't even have servants. And then I'm not getting drunk all the time. And so I'm pretty good on that. So I think I'm good to go. But I don't think that the interpretation can be so wooden or rigid, especially with a parable like this. We have to think about principles. When I see a deeper principle, I see people whom God loves and instructs. He gives them a law. He's present with them. And his most fundamental trajectory for their lives is that they would become people who love God with everything they've got and love their neighbors. 
taking care of them in the same way that they take care of their, themselves. So love your neighbor as yourself. Take care of them like you take care of yourself. Okay, so I think the principle is this is what God wanted for his servants, how they were to live with one another and treat his people, etc. And it's basic in this deep-rooted love for God and others. And I know life is obviously more complex, but this is the heart of God's true people. It's that heartbeat of all that he instructed. It's what all the law and the prophets hang on, Jesus has already said. And so, when God says to his people that they are to be a blessing to the other nations in the way that God has blessed them, and that way is pretty straightforward, and it means to be very, very loving, then they do know what to do. But something about taking control of things when they feel like they're out of control has plagued them since they were first formed as a people. You know, Moses is up on the mountain, things feel out of control, they try to take control, and next thing we're dancing around a doggone golden cow, <laughs> you know? They they have a history, and you and I have a history, it's, we are prone to wander. Things get scary, we tend to take things into it, we take control. A sense of God's presence leaving now we're on our own, and we have to do what we have to do. It's just business. And now, in terms of religious life, with God and community, and in terms of caring for the people of God, we've been doing our own thing, primarily driven by fear for so long, we don't even know. Surely the disciples are seeing that in the religious elite and in themselves. We've come to a place where we think it's all for God. We don't... We're literally beating up our own people, okay? And okay, you might not have servants or even employees, but we're forcing some to slave their lives away for low pay just to barely survive because we've learned to think of them as lower than us. I, do you see it? I think that's what Jesus means when he says they beat their fellow servants, their fellow servants. They demeaned people who were supposed to live mutually with them. They saw themselves as better than others and others as better than them. And so this whole hierarchy allows us to mistreat some. It's just the way it is. It's how we get ahead. We ch we champion the skill and the prowess and the beauty, and we let go of the losers who can't do anything, and that's how we get ahead. It's how we're most efficient, you know, whatever. He's like, you're just used to it. When all along, we were meant to love one another not to lord over one another, to grasp onto like a divine power over somebody else, not to try to control things, but to receive life and to give it to one another as friends, as brothers and sisters. In that way, life continues on forever. And this other sense of partying or drunkening themselves, in principle, it's numbing their life with something that helped them avoid facing reality. All right? It's not about alcohol specifically, though I think that is a good way to numb your life away. I tried that for many years. It almost cost me my life. You know, it wound, it destroyed everything inside of me. But it's not just that. It's about sugar and shows and shopping and substances and perhaps the greatest drug addiction of our era, busyness, being busy with achieving things. So there using other people to their benefit and numbing themselves so they don't have to face reality, okay? 
that rings a little truer and more challenging to me than they beat their servants and spent nights with the drunkards, you know? It's like, <laughs> no, I, I actually wonder about these two things. He invites me to think deeply on two things. The very lives we see playing out in Jerusalem and the distance that those lives have drifted away from God's way. And then maybe a third thing is, where am I in the story? And the disciples get to self-examine, and we self-examine, and we reflect honestly with Jesus, and we say, show me. Help me see where I am trusting false messiahs. Teach me about my worry, my fear. Show me how it governs my parenting. Show me how it governs the way I work and earn money, the way that I eat food, the way that I buy things. How does my fear influence or even govern those activities and decisions? Show me, God, how does my fear govern the way that I think about others? Search that innermost part of my being and show me what is real. Show me what is real. The act of consuming other people, beating their fellow people, and the act of, of numbing their lives away were all an effort to not face the reality. And I think it's weird because the reality is they're not living in the way of God, but the deception is that living in the way of God is radically, you know, brutal and will take something that they need when really it only gives you everything you need. Well, okay, so here we are. The stories are flying. We've got references to Noah. Jesus is building this whole theme, and we come to the bridesmaids parable now. And I want to recap where we've been in 24, and then we'll turn to 25 to finish today. Jesus as we saw, starts out in the first verses inviting them to imagine the utter destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and all that they see in front of them from the top of this hill that's overlooking Jerusalem, okay? And they're, <laughs> I know you guys love what you see here. Now just imagine it's totally wrecked. And they ask when. And he says, don't know, but that's okay because we do know what to do. Don't pretend you don't know what to do. Okay. Others have pretended that. People in Noah's day pretended that, etc., etc. Let's not get pulled away from God's way by false promises or by our own senses that tell us to trust ourselves alone. Don't be deceived because when you do, you end up beating other people down and numbing yourself out of reality. You end up not even knowing it. Okay. And you're thinking, later, 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 I'll pay attention. And this has been the big buildup now, which in so many ways will say everything we already have, but it brings it into focus and listen to how this parable just pops now. Here we go. Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be, oh, there, there's our opener. Here's one now where he opens it up in a good parable format, a, a parable of the kingdom. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish 
and five of them were wise. The five who were foolish did not take enough olive oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. <laughs> okay, good story so far. So far we're tracking. Some were prepared, some weren't. They all fell asleep. Sometimes people think that falling asleep was a problem here. They shouldn't have fallen asleep. Oh, no, they weren't. That's actually, I don't think that's the point. Because both the wise and the foolish, they both fall asleep. So most listening to Jesus would probably understand that as being a possibility, too, for this kind of event. All of those judgment scenes that lead up to this are kind of abstract, but this is a concrete picture. Okay, they get the wedding festival. That's that's a big deal in their culture, and they they I know how this works. And at the wedding procession, folks gathered for singing and dancing, and they would move from the bride's home to the groom's home, and it was usually at night, so you needed lamps. You know, sometimes um, you you see pictures of biblical era lamps that look like little clay bowls almost, and these are not those kind of lamps, most likely. They were just too small. You're trying to light a path and light a whole procession. And so these were going to be, think think more like torches, bigger for sure. And especially in the poorer areas, think more like Indiana Jones style torches, you know, <laughs> wraps, uh, r cloth wrapped around the end of a relatively long stick, and it's soaked in oil. And then, you know, you can light that baby up and it'll give you way more light and you can hold it out in front of you and all that. So these are the kind of uh, lamps we're talking about. Ben Witherington uh, is a New Testament scholar. A few others have found evidence that these torches would possibly burn out every 15 minutes or so. So you'd need to bring extra strips of like oil-soaked cloth. Um, Joachim Jeremiah did a good bit of contextual research about this time frame and says that even though the messengers would repeatedly announce the bridegroom's coming, so it's coming, he's coming, he's coming, sometimes you know, it was common for delays as people, I don't know, you've been to weddings before, don't things get backed up and slowed down and you, you miss the time sometimes, something like that. But longer delays. It was very common. And it seems that these delays were common enough that the bridesmaids should have planned ahead. I think that's the idea at the opening of the parable. And indeed, half of them did. They knew, we better take some extra cloth, some extra oil. And, uh, and then half of them were not prepared. And it doesn't tell us why, per se. It just says they weren't prepared. And now the darkness lingers on. And as midnight approaches... They all fall asleep, waiting for the bridegroom. So, there they are. I don't know. I imagine a dark street, and they're kind of sitting up, maybe huddled up against a, a building, and they're like, man, i got to rest my head a little bit. It's quiet here and dark. <laughs> well, they're all falling asleep, waiting for the bridegroom, and here we are, Matthew 25, verse 6. At midnight, they were roused by the shout, Look, look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and meet him. All the bridemaids got up and prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, Please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. And they're burning out quick. But the others replied, We don't have enough oil for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some more for yourselves. Verse 10. 
But while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, Believe me, I don't know you. So you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or the hour of my return. This is the gospel. Thanks be to God. Hmm. I'm not sure about you. Um, something about that makes perfect sense, and then something about it seems ridiculously harsh. I don't know if you picked up on that. You know, it makes sense in the preparation. Some weren't prepared. They messed up. But there is this weird moment where it feels like the teaching of Jesus, which would be be generous and share, you know, uh, is not being honored here. And so how can he call them wise when they're not doing the right thing? <laughs> All, I, I would just, we have to remember the parable is not trying to give us a perfect picture of ethical behavior all the way around. It's focusing on one specific point. And, and it's imagining, it's inviting us to imagine this sort of operation that's going on, if you will. So, sure, maybe they should have, would have, or could have shared, but it's that's not what is in play here. What's in play, what we want to be, what he wants us to see is preparation. Some are focused on the time that they're in and what it means to live accordingly in that way with a focus on the bridegroom, and then the other five are not interested in that, okay? So we don't have to get hung up on sort of our sensibility and our question of like, well, why can't they share? That's not what the story is about at all. The message is about preparedness, about what you believe, what do the five who are not prepared, what are they believing about their world and how they're living? What do we believe in the perpetual ongoing election day of 2020's COVID nightmare? You know, it's like Groundhog Day. It never ends. How are we living? What does my weekly schedule teach me about what I trust and about how much my senses are governing me? Are we beating up or consuming the people around us and numbing ourselves along the way just to make it to some promised life that the world-created leader is luring us with? Or are we actually integrating God's way into those things that make sense to us? Because the basic problem with the unwise bridemaids is that they lost focus. They had some reason to wander, if you will, to not tend to what mattered the most in that time. In the time, I think it's no mistake that it's the it's right before the bridegroom arrives. I love that Jesus doesn't tell us what caused them to wander, what it was they felt was more important than living in the truthful and the prepared way. But it makes me think about what is most on my mind these days, what distracts me or consumes my attention. And that, I think, ends up being what is most important to me. That's the parable of the ten bridesmaids. May we hear its promise and heed its warning. It helps to focus things for us. They were rightly calling him Lord, Lord. 
They knew him as uh, an authority. They believed they wanted to be there for him and, and do what he had said. They really did. That double whammy, kurios, kurios in the Greek is a, is a, like an affirmative, proper, uh, um, respectful way to properly say, you are my authority. Lord, Lord, open the door for us, they say. And he says, believe me, I don't know you. Um, um, what is the amen, amen lego <laughs> is the Greek there. Uh, amen lego. <laughs> I like that. It is, um, it is verily, verily, I say unto you, you maybe have heard that kind of term before, like, trust me, believe me. What I'm trying to tell you is true and you won't even believe it, but I don't know who you are. I have no, you don't have a relationship with me. He's saying to them, and I think they're like, what do you mean? How is that possible? And they're faced with the fact that they've wandered so far, they don't even recognize his way. They haven't even wanted it enough to be prepared to actually live in his way. Oh, man, that's intense, isn't it? So the focus comes into clarity now. The opening impatience of the disciples, yes, when, when, when is it going to happen, matches the overall impatience of the Jewish people especially the leaders in the temple. These apocalyptic times, these times that reveal reality, very painful times. And I think we're living in one of these times right now. I honestly do. They, just because it's painful and a lot is being revealed, you know, there we are. They force us to either panic and act reactively in fear, or we patiently learn and see what God is showing us. It's one of the two. We react in panic and fear and we start working and we start fighting and we start doing all the things we think can help control and save and whatever, and we wander far. Or we start to patiently learn and see what God is showing us. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it seal it for thy courts above you know we we want god in this moment nothing else we need to be together as a church so deeply right now so we can keep learning the way of jesus and forgiving one another and becoming open and honest and real in his way not wandering from it we'll end with this thought apocalyptic names the time that requires waiting Right, Stanley Harawas. You know, I love you guys have to get Stanley Harawas's Matthew commentary. It's so good. I've been quoting it all the way through this. He says, Apocalyptic names the time that requires waiting. It is not just any kind of waiting, but rather it is the waiting made possible by a hope made real. Jesus is that hope, and he instills the same hope in those who would follow him. It is not the hope of idealism that tires when the ideas seem unreachable. Rather, it is the hope schooled by the Father's patience to redeem the world through his Son. Without patience, those filled with hope threaten to destroy that which they hope for. And without hope, the patient threaten to leave the world as they find it.
disciples of Jesus must learn how to take the time to patiently hope in a world that thinks it has no time for either hope or patience. Wow. I think we have to read those last three lines one more time. It's the heart, I think, of all that we're looking at here. And we'll pick it up again in the next episode uh, on the Mountain of Olives. But here, one more time. Without patience, those who are filled with hope threaten to destroy that which they hope for. And without hope, the patient threaten to leave the world as they find it. Disciples of Jesus must learn how to take the time to patiently hope in a world that thinks it has no time for either hope or patience. Jesus, may we become a patient people who put hope only in you and no other voice that comes from this world promising some better life without you. Help us to integrate our sense, our sensory perception with your will in a way where your will is our number one priority. May we be prepared by you. Form us into your people. Amen. Amen.